morning, church family. Uh, we are going to be continuing in our series on Ephesians. So if you would uh, open up to Ephesians chapter 3. We are almost halfway through the book. And so far, Paul has uh, been crafting a vision for us for who we are in Christ. In the first part of the letter, he talks about how the church at Ephesus, the, the Gentiles, are spiritually dead because of their sins. But then God made them spiritually alive in Christ. Later in chapter 2, uh, Paul explains how Jews and Gentiles, two groups that are extremely different and at times very at odds, are also brought together in Christ. We see this double alienation, the separation between Gentiles and God, and the separation between Gentiles and Jews, and how in Christ they're reconciled. In this section, Paul's continuing to unpack this incredible reality that those of us who are not ethnic Jews still have access to God through Jesus. And we're brought to be, in, we're brought to be the people of God, adopted into the family of God. So this is where we find ourselves today. God, uh, Paul is talking to us about togetherness in the church, and we're going to be in uh, verses 1 through 13. And how we are together united with God and together united with each other. So let's, let's pray as we begin. God, I pray um, that you would penetrate our hearts deeply with your word here. That you would, you would speak to us now uh, and share your plan. This marvelous mystery that has been unraveled um, through Revelation, Lord. So thank you. Thank you for this truth. We pray that you um, help us understand it deeply. Lord, we, we love you so much and um, ask all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin by reading the first um, few verses. I'm reading out of the NIV here. It says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Gentiles, or the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Holy Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So there's a, there's a lot in this section that we're going to kind of step through a verse or a couple of verses at a time, beginning 
with verse 1. So when Paul writes this, he's on house arrest in Rome. Um, you, you see the, the story of when he's writing this in Acts 28. And he's been on three missionary journeys. And on his third, he went to this place, Ephesus, and he planted the church. And he spent a couple years with the people. Um, at this point, he's been a Christian for about 30 years. What's interesting in this, in this section is for the first time he's mentioning that he's a, he's a prisoner to the people of Ephesus. Uh, and we'll, we'll jump back to that a little bit because he ends this section by saying that as well. Uh, but then he jumps into saying that he's an administer of God's grace. What does that mean? Well, administration is the task of stewardship, right? So Paul is saying that God has assigned him a task, a special work of being sent to the Gentiles. Apostle means sent one, and he's sent to the, the Gentiles. Uh, so he's, he's sent there, why? To reveal this mystery that has been given to him by revelation. And he's saying, to steward this gift well, I have to tell you, I have to reveal this mystery to you. Uh, for him to not reveal the mystery is to, to not complete the task well as it was assigned to him. It's like a few months ago, my grandma gave me uh, some money to give to the church. She administered a task to me. She sent me to uh, have this particular role to give money to the church. And before you even ask if that task was completed or not, she gave me a check. So I couldn't even think about it, okay? Uh, but yes, I got the, the, the check to the tithe box. So here in a similar way, uh, Paul is saying, I've received this special task, and he's given something to give to someone else, but it isn't money. It's a message, and he's going to explain what this message is, but it's a gift of God's grace. He says, uh, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly. What does he mean as I've already written briefly? This is really interesting. So uh, some scholarship suggests that this means that there was another letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus that we just don't have. Uh, but there's others who say that he's probably just referring to a part previous in the, in, the, in the letter of Ephesians. Perhaps he's referring to verse 9 in chapter 1 where he introduces the idea of this mystery of God's will. He says, with all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. So, so here he's going to expound on this idea of the, the mystery of God. He's going to unpack it for us. So let's, let's look down at verse 4. He says, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So the stated intention of this letter here is that these people will have this insight. So this is, a, this is a, an important message for us because Paul's going to explain this mystery. And I, I think it's really good. It's, it's packed full of um, just, just truth about the realities of God and, and what he has purposed uh, in us in Christ. So, um, and he also says, Look, it's a privileged thing that you know now because God has revealed it to me. And 
Nobody else has known about this for past generations. So what's, what's a mystery? And this is important. A mystery is something that is unknown. It's, it isn't something new that comes into being, but rather it's something that exists. It's a reality that we just don't understand and we don't know yet. Think about a good uh, mystery novel or story. Something happens, maybe it's a crime, and then uh, part of the enjoyment of that storyline is that over time it begins to make sense. Um, this past weekend, Abby and I were watching this documentary on Netflix called The Secrets of Sakara. Has anybody seen this? Okay. Well, <laughs> it's pretty neat, actually. Um, there's this place in Egypt called Saqqara. And uh, in 2018, archaeologists began digging here. You can see I got some pictures. Um, and they dug up this mass grave site that shed lights on, on a lot of the mysteries surrounding ancient Egypt. So uh, you can check it out on the Smithsonian website. You can check it out on the documentary on Egypt, uh, on Secrets of Saqqara on Netflix. It says in December 2018, Mustafa Waziri, the archaeologist overseeing the project, announced the discovery of a 4,400-year-old tomb, intact and ornately carved, that belonged to a high-ranking priest named Wati. The dig yielded intriguing caches of animal mummies, not just cats, but a cobra, a lion cub, a mongoose, and even a scarab beetle. Then, in September 2020, the team unearthed a vertical shaft dug 30 feet down into the bedrock, the first of the megatombs, all right? In separate niches at the bottom, there were two giant coffins. And when the archaeologists cleared the surrounding debris, they found dozens more. I had to call the antiquities minister, says Waziri. The minister asked me, how many? Eight months later, we're still counting. Here's a photo of uh, the dig. Here's Mohammed Yusuf, the site director, being lowered by rope into this shaft that's 30 feet below the earth that had been closed for over 2,000 years. And at the bottom, it says, Yusuf shined his flashlight through a gap in the limestone and was greeted by a god's gleaming eyes, a small painted statue of the composite funerary deity, Ptah Sakar Osiris. Abby can correct me if I said that right. Osiris. With a golden face and plumbed crown. It was Yusuf's first glimpse of a large chamber that was guarded by a heap of figurines, carved wooden chests, and piles of blackened linen. So you can see some of the discovery. Um, this is crazy, right? So he went into the megatomb and found something that had existed before, but had yet to be discovered. It had yet to be unearthed. And now they're, they're piecing together, they're reading all the hieroglyphs and figuring out uh, answers to the questions surrounding ancient culture. Here's, here's the point. This is a reality that's now being revealed in a sense. Um, it's not like it was created. It's been there for thousands of years. But now we're beginning to understand much, much more by the discovery. It was a mystery, but now it's being understood. And, and the same thing is true uh, with Paul here too. Paul saying, look, this isn't something new. It's a mystery that's being revealed. 
So what is it that he's speaking of? Look down at verse 6, and this is, kind of the, this is kind of the main verse of this section, I believe. He says, the mystery is that through the gospels, through, or through the gospel, through the good news, the Gentiles are heirs with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The reason I went into that bit about the mystery is because this isn't that you guys are now part of God's plan. No, the plan has always included the Gentiles. But this is now revealing how and to what extent the Gentiles are included, that they are heirs together with Israel, equal counterparts. They're members of one body and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus. Um, look, look, God's plan has always included the Gentiles. I picked out a few few scripture verses here. In Genesis chapter 12, God is commissioning Abram. He says, go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those around you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All people on earth will be blessed through you. Look at this. It's even clearer here. In Isaiah 49, he says, this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant and to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring those back, uh, those of Israel back I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God's plan has always included Gentiles. And here Paul is explaining how and to what extent that it will reach to the ends of the earth. Wednesday night I was digging into this passage and I was thinking, okay, Gentiles, Gentile is a word that we use all the time here in church. And I was like, okay, what does, what does that mean? So I was looking it up in some, some Bible dictionaries and that sort of thing. And notice that the, the Greek word for Gentile is ethnos. It's where we get our English word ethnic. It's where we get our English word ethnicity. Um, it's also translated in other places as peoples or nations. In fact, in the Great Commission, which I don't have up there, um, Matthew 28, Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, of all ethnos. The Gentiles are everyone. Everyone has the possibility in Christ to be heirs, to be part of the one body, to be sharers together with and in the promises in Christ Jesus. All people from every nation. I, I used to think that the Gentiles were just like the Romans and the Greeks, right? No. The Vietnamese, the Burmese, the Thai, the Malaysian, the Indonesian. You see where I'm going with this? The Filipino, the Taiwanese, the Korean, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Indian, the Russians, the Cambodians, the Australians, the Kiwis, the what? Those are people from New Zealand. I didn't know that. The Sri Lankan, the Pakistani, the Afghani, Saudi Arabian, the Turks, Uzbekistani, the Belgian, the Ukrainian, the Greek, the Italian, the Polish, the German, the French, the Spanish, the Irish, the Swedish, the Norwegian, the Finnish, the Moroccan, the Egyptian, the Ethiopian, the Tanzanian, the Ghanan, the Sudanese, the Chadian, the Congolese, the Brazilian, the Argentinian, the Uruguayans, Peruvians, Bolivians, Mexicans, Dominicans, Haitians, Puerto Ricans, Canadians, and the Americans, just to name a few. Just to name a few. 
We all are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and sharers together in the promises in Christ Jesus. And this is incredible, right? Because Israel only has like 9, 9 million people in it. It's like 0.1% of the world. And, and I love that passage in Isaiah. It would be too small a thing. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, to the ethnos, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The church is big. It's bigger than Franklin Community Church. It's bigger than Franklin. It's bigger than Indiana. It's bigger than the U.S., right? This is the mystery revealed. Heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body. Shares together in the promise of, of Christ. Notice that repeating word, together. Circle that. Together. You, me, us, together. Our, our neighbors and other nations. One body. Together with Israel. We share in the promise of salvation. This is the promise that we are able to receive salvation. We're able to receive inheritance. We're able to be brought into the family of God. In verse 7, Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make known, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for past ages was kept hidden in God, who created all things. The grace was given to Paul to preach the boundless riches. Boundless riches in Christ. The, the inheritance, the grace, they have no bound. God doesn't say, you guys, you guys, you guys get some. Uh, yeah, you get some. You, you guys can have some too. I don't know, I might run out if I give some. If I give any more to you, then I might not have. No, there's boundless riches in Christ. There's no scarcity with God, just abundance. Oftentimes we have a scarcity mindset, don't we? We got unlimited resources, or limited resources, unlimited opportunities to use those resources. And we look and we say, man, I don't have enough. But we have boundless riches in Christ Jesus. With God, the abundance is boundless. And this is, this is the gospel message, right? We are unable to purchase our own salvation. But God, who has boundless riches, purchased it with a price that only he could pay. Remember 1 John? It says right here, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think this is what it's getting at. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's universalist. Everybody goes to heaven. No, he says that you still have to receive grace through faith. So it's for people who put their faith in Christ. But what he's saying is there's no cap. There's no cap on how many people can go to him to receive that grace. What he, what he did was enough because there's boundless riches in Christ to overcome and to conquer, to deal away with the sins of the whole world. All of those who go to him and faith and repentance, seeking forgiveness, find it. And the grace of God will come to all who call upon the name of the Lord. The gift of the promise of salvation, the initiation into the family of God, and the promise of inheriting the boundless riches of Christ 
is available to all who put their trust in him. So now look, look, at, look at his intent in verse 10. Uh, it says that God's intent, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, this is a good quote here, I think, that's helpful from John Stott. He says, uh, God's plan for salvation always included people of every nation and tribe, every nation and tongue. But what neither the Old Testament nor Jesus revealed was the radical nature of God's plan, which was that the Jewish nation under God's rule would be terminated and replaced by a new international community, the church. That this church would be the body of Christ, organically united to him. And that Jews and Gentiles would be incorporated into Christ and his church on equal terms without distinction. This is a beautiful thought, right? I'm not Jewish. I don't know if any of you are Jewish. But to those of you who are not, it means that we can be united with Christ, even though our ethnicity isn't Jewish. And that the church would be the manifold wisdom of God. What does that mean? Um, what, what does it mean that it would be the manifold wisdom of God that's being made known to the authorities in the heavenly realms? So I think that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms means two things. I think it means angels and demons. Um, here's why. In, in First Peter, or no, in, uh, we'll, do, we'll do demons first. So in Ephesians 6, 12, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the ruler, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So our enemy is, he uses the same language, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, um, spiritual forces of evil. I think he's talking about the demonic forces, our enemies, not flesh and blood, but the enemies in the heavenly realms. So the manifold wisdom of God is being made known and being revealed. The demons don't understand the plan of God, but through the church, they, they see, and I think that they're I think that they're shuddering. <laughs> um, and then also angels here in, in 1 Peter. Listen to this. This is incredible. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke about the grace that was, coming, that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. So I think that there's a way in which the wisdom of God, the plan of God, the purposes, the glory of God is being revealed through the church to the angels as well. The, the, the angels long to look into these things concerning the salvation. What he's saying is that the prophets talk about salvation wasn't to serve themselves, but to serve the people that Peter's writing to. By the way, he's writing to people in the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and uh, Bithynia, uh, so Jews and Gentiles. The prophets revealed this revelation from the Holy Spirit, and the angels don't even know yet. They're longing to look into these things. So the church is showing and revealing the plan of God. The manifold wisdom of God is made known to us so that it can be known to 
the world and to, and to the spiritual realities. And then in verse 12, he says, in him, through faith, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. He says, look, because of your standing with God, you can approach him with freedom and confidence. So don't be discouraged. It's for your glory. The glory that they will receive will justify any suffering that he has endured up until this point. It's worth it for him to make this message known to them, even though he's, even though he's suffering. And glory, glory, glory has this connotation of weighty or important, heavy. It, it, it moved to mean influential or rich or prominent, and those people were usually ordained with jewels, and so it carries this connotation of beauty as well. And we can see why it's an attribute of God. It talks about God's glory all the time, the weightiness of God, the beauty of God, the importance of God. But what does it mean that the Ephesians, this church, will have glory as those who are heirs of Christ together with Israel? They inherit this glory as well. Receiving this glory, Paul talks about the process of uh, salvation, including glorification in Romans 8. It's the final piece of this. Salvation that comes after death in, 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 in the eternal, in eternal life. It's the completion, the consummation, the perfection, the full realization of, of our faith. So out of, out of this scripture, I think that there are kind of three, three things that are really important messages to hear for us today about togetherness. And the, the first one is that togetherness of the church is the way that God reveals his glorious plan to all beings. You know, we talk a lot about how we as the church are the light to the world, and that means other people. And that's, that's true, um, and that's awesome. But to me, thinking about this and meditating about this this week was even cooler when it was like, the angels don't even know about these things yet. And our togetherness, the way that we live in unity and community, is revealing to them how great God is. It's, it's showing the angels God, God knew what he was doing. His plan is really, really, really neat. And that's, that's revealed to people when we live in that community and that togetherness. And that's kind of like the second one, too, which is uh, the togetherness of the church reflects the manifold wisdom of God. Last week, Pastor Dan talked about how in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between Jews and Gentiles. I think that only, only God could think of this, that he sent his son to die so that the world might be able to live through him for people who call upon his name and repent. Only God could have thought of something so great, to demonstrate his character and grace to a people group, but to allow the people uh, to be part of, of making his love and grace known to all people and then extending that, breaking down any barriers, extending that to the world, that God might be known in all the nations. And then the last one, these two kind of lead up to it, is more specific for our church here, that our togetherness here at Franklin Community Church is part of God's eternal purpose. And we all have a part to play in that. 
Togetherness is part of God's eternal purpose. Um, togetherness doesn't mean coexistence, right? You see the, the bumper stickers on the, uh, on the cars? Anybody seen those? Those? Alan, that looks kind of like your car. Okay. There's <laughs> uh, a Texas license plate. I had to blur it out because I got it on Google. Uh, you know, these coexist stickers, the idea is that we're all people, and so we should, and we believe different things, but we can still exist together. It's true, but I don't think that's a really great, like, it's not, like, you can, you can coexist with anything. I was talking with Pastor Dan this morning. He said, you can coexist with the rock. Like, that's not, that's not that impressive of a thing. Um, the togetherness that God is calling us to is not just coexistence. It's much greater than that. Think, think about it this way. Like, if, if two people are married and they can coexist and they don't argue, like, that's doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be a great marriage, right? Because marriage is much more, I mean, yeah, maybe there's not strife and that sort of thing, but there's an interconnectedness, a joy that that relationship, that that togetherness gives. And, and that's, what, that's what he's getting at here, the togetherness. Last week, the passage before this, if you, if you didn't catch that sermon, go check it out. It talks about how Christ himself is our peace. Um, and this peace is not like the, the Pax Romana that Pastor Dan talked about last week where the Romans had peace during their empire, not because people necessarily wanted it, but because they would smite anybody who tried to come against that peace. No, the peace of God is something completely different. Um, the, the Hebrew word shalom, right, shalom, peace, has to do with wholeness, has to do with welfare, with, with abundance in the relationship. And that's the kind of peace that we have in Christ and this is what we seek in our community here at Franklin Community Church. The wholeness and welfare and abundance we seek in, in our church, in our families. We seek it in our jobs, in our schools. It's a dynamic, adventurous, joyful peace. It's a peace where there is union that brings deep gladness. An interconnectedness where burdens can be shared. Where joys can be celebrated together. There's community where you're known and loved for who you uniquely are, and you know and love others for who they uniquely are. Life is shared and lived together, and togetherness is what gives life itself color. So Franklin Community Church, if togetherness is characteristic of the universal uppercase C church, it should be characteristic of us as well, right? And it is. And that's why I love this church. I love that, that community is written into our name. And I can't tell you how many people uh, I've talked to have said, it feels like family. I go in there. People are warm. I believe. The elders believe. Pastor Dan believes. We believe. We've talked about this a lot. That our togetherness is part of our purpose and the eternal plan of God. This is how we fit into the plan and the purpose of God. Community is what our identity is. And community is what we should all be intentionally striving after as well. 
There are no lone rangers in the family of God. Even Lone Ranger had Tonto. Uh, it's funnier when you know Spanish, isn't it? <laughs> um, and so we've tried to come up with common language, common language um, to articulate this as a body of Christ, as a unique local expression. Um, and this isn't something that, that we came up with. You've heard about this the past couple of weeks. It's not something we came up with like this week in preparation for the sermon. We've been talking about it for a while, but I think it gets to the core of who we are. And so this is language that we want to do. It's because of who we are and it's because of what we are striving to do. And that's we want to cultivate Christ-centered community. Cultivate Christ-centered community. Say it with me. Cultivate Christ-centered community. Cultivate Christ-centered community. This passage provides great theological, a great theological foundation for why we want to cultivate Christ-centered community. Community is, is strengthened and deepened. Uh, it's the strengthening and deepening of relationship. And so we talk about cultivation as how we do that. Cultivation, as you guys know, is like, it's like a farming or gardening term. Right? You're tilling the soil, you're fertilizing it, you're watering it. You can't force things to grow, but you can create an environment that is conducive to growth. Um, to keep our, our community Christ-centered, you know, is, is the main purpose of this. That's the foundation that's going to last. With Christ as the cornerstone, like Pastor Dan talked about last week, um, what sorts of things can we do to help foster growth? Well, spending time together, discussing, discussion, playing games, going for walks, drinking coffee, these sorts of things are ways that we can foster this togetherness, which is in part us living out the eternal plan of God. And it's something that takes everyone to do. We believe that this, this community is what God has called his people to do for, for, for our joy, for his glory, and to be the light to the world. And let me say, this right here is the motivation for everything we do at the church. It's why Pastor Dan has his Bible studies on, on Wednesday nights to grow a community that's Christ-centered. This is why we have our Bible study on Tuesday nights. It's why we have our life groups to, to grow that community with fellow believers. Um, it's why we are going to the Thompsons on the 24th because we think that that togetherness is, is valuable and worthwhile to pursue. Um, it's our motivation for the friendship dinners, as you see the signs on the, on the walls. We want to broaden our community as we invite new people into it, and we want to deepen it through intentionally creating the space. It's not about trying to make you busier, I promise. There, there's, we, we know that people are busy. Um, it's about understanding our unity and our shared life contributes to our spiritual formation, which is a blessing to us and tells the world of the manifold wisdom of God. And also, let me say this, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. We, we know that people have different needs when it comes to community. Some people like the spontaneity of having somebody just come and knock on their door. It's spontaneous. Other people hate that. You come knock on the door, it's anxiety attack. You know, um, there's people, people understand community differently. Um, but regardless of what form it takes, it's, it's valuable to think, okay, how can, how can we pursue this together? How can I play a part? Because it is interconnectedness. It's something that it takes all of us. Not that you have to be best friends with everybody, but are you pursuing, understanding that relationship in the Christian walk is important and it's our, our togetherness as the body of Christ that, 
that shows and reveals God's glory. So um, my question for you this week is how can you intentionally cultivate Christ-centered community? Maybe that means starting a Bible study. Maybe it means uh, inviting somebody over for dinner or for coffee. Maybe it means um, signing up for the friendship dinners or going to the Thompsons when you wouldn't have otherwise done that. Uh, maybe that means inviting somebody to go for a walk with you. Maybe it's an individual thing. Maybe it's something that's sustained over months or weeks or years or whatever. Um, maybe it means having a game night or something. My encouragement is think, of, think about how you can play a part in this. Maybe that means asking somebody for their phone number and inviting them over. Um, talking with them, listening, asking questions, finding things in common. Don't be discouraged. Building community takes time. But we, we want to um, grow deeper with the people that we know and, and continue to be hospitable to the people that we don't know yet. Darren Thompson told me a few weeks ago, he said, uh, there's no shortcut to relationships. It takes time. Something like that, right? I've been thinking about that a lot. It does. It takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes time. I think you said intentionality, too. Um, togetherness. It's part of God's eternal purpose. So does doing these things, going for walks, having coffee, do those, are those really what Paul's getting at here? This is the togetherness that shows God's glory? Yes, I think so. I think that not every interaction needs to be, you know, Bible study, prayer. I think that there's space for rest, for recon uh, for, for rest and for um, recreation. I think God is a restful God. God is a God of recreation. And uh, just yesterday, I spent time with a couple, couple different friends on separate occasions, one in the morning, one in the evening. And I left both of those. They weren't discipleship meetings. I was having breakfast with a guy. I was going for a drive with another guy. I left both of those feeling encouraged and filled up. You know, it was just, there was just space. And, and that felt, that was so encouraging to me. Um, scripture talks about it too, how there's, there's iron sharpening iron kind of thing. And uh, I felt grateful to God for those relationships. I still do. I feel grateful for both of those friendships. Uh, community is a huge blessing. And community takes people intentionally investing, creating that space for it to grow. This is near and dear to the heart of God. He paid a great price for it, for us to be in relationship with him and for us to be in relationship with others. And uh, I think that some that may take sacrifice for us as well in order to carve out the space and that sort of thing. But it is near and dear to God's heart, so it should be near and dear to our heart. So um, the church is more marvelous, I think, than we could have ever imagined. And the reality of our unity in Christ isn't something that I think we'll ever really fully grasp, this side of heaven. Um, but we can lean into it. We can cultivate it here. So my question is, how can you cultivate Christ-centered community here? How can you deepen your relational roots? And how can you expand the boundaries of the garden by inviting new people into it? 